Taxes Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, the rise of data antitrust and a rough start for Disney+. Plus. But first, blame the algorithm, part two. So yesterday's episode focused on alleged gender bias in credit card applications, and in particular, the new Apple card that's being issued by Goldman Sachs. A Silicon Valley engineer named David Heinemeyer Hansen had said that he received a credit limit 20 times higher than that of his wife, even though she had a better credit score and the couple files joint tax returns. And then came similar complaints, including from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Here's Hansen during yesterday's episode. There's nowhere in their algorithm where it says, if a woman applies, give this lower rating. No, that's not how algorithmic bias works. It works by feeding it training data that ends up being biased or it ends up considering things in some cases and not considering things in other cases. So Goldman Sachs is now under investigation over the matter by New York regulators, but it steadfastly insists that its algorithm knows neither gender nor marital status. Instead, Goldman says that the Apple card differs from other credit cards and that it only focuses on the individual, whereas many of those other cards include primary holders and then authorized users, like a spouse. As such, it says the individual's credit history is king and gender has nothing to do with it. In 15 seconds, we'll dig in with Carrie Hallio, CEO of Goldman Sachs' retail bank. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Know everything about coding, but not so much about banking? For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has been helping high-growth companies navigate through each stage of the startup journey. Stay tuned to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. We're joined now by Carrie Helio, the Chief Executive Officer of Goldman Sachs Bank USA. So, Carrie, I want to talk to you first about the statement you put out on behalf of Goldman in the aftermath of the David Heinemeyer Hansen stuff. One of the things you said was that Goldman doesn't know gender or marital status. When you guys have the credit checks run, marital status isn't part of that? That's correct. It's not part of it. We don't ask about those things. We don't know about those things. They're not part of the decision-making process. But am I correct in saying when you apply for the card, it asks for your average annual income? And as part of that, it says that any joint income or any money that goes into a joint bank account should be included. So if I am, for example, a stay-at-home spouse, but my working spouse makes $100,000 a year and it goes into a joint bank account, I'm supposed to put $100,000 down, correct? That's right. We ask for your annual income from all available sources, and that's an important component to it. That's absolutely incorporated. We don't ask you where you get that income, right? So if you're a stay-at-home spouse, that the income you put down is the income we use to evaluate the credit decision. So is what you're saying in part a lot of this um, controversy over this? Are you kind of arguing to a certain extent that this could be individuals or applicants, rather, who are not putting in the information they should be putting in to the system? Look, I think what we're realizing this week is that that there's an important conversation to have around people's awareness of what their credit history says, what it shows, and what the facts are in any individual credit history. And individual is an important word here because when we make credit underwriting decisions, we're doing it on an individual basis. And so someone's credit history should, you know, shows a certain thing and everyone should be aware of what that shows. It's not something you guys provide though, right? Because if I apply for the card, I just literally, before we did this interview, I applied for an Apple card. So I was curious. So so, so it goes you. through it, ask some pretty basic information, date of birth, again, Correct. average annual income. And then right before you hit 
hit accept. It says, hey, take a look at our terms and, and of service, obviously, but also take a look. But all it really shows me is my credit score. It doesn't actually show my credit report and the underlying information. Should it? Should it give right. me more information? I think that, you know, knowing what your credit score is, that, that's not go- something that Goldman Sachs does, right? There are industry standards for credit scores. There's different credit bureaus out there. And so your credit score is an important component. The credit score is derived from your credit history, right? And you're not born with your credit history. It's something that you have to build over time. And it's built based on your spending habits, how much debt you have, how you pay that debt off or not, what your payment history is, how much open credit you have. All of those things go into your credit score. And so we are evaluating that information that's available from the credit bureaus when we make the credit decision. And you're saying that beyond credit score, credit history rather, you guys aren't taking anything else into account? Because obviously when you ask things like date of birth, I assume that's for identity verification, but you're not taking age, location, anything else, any demographics into account? Right. We need to verify who you are. We need to look at your credit history. And we also ask you, as you noted, what your income is, right? And so that's the combination of factors that we use in the sort of credit decision engine, the rules-based approach that we use to make credit decisions. Carrie, you also said in the statement that there's a third party that reviewed the algorithm against unintended bias. Who was the third party? We've used an industry standard consultant to come in and look at the credit decision engine that we use, the rules-based process, and they did that before we launched the card and determined. So there's the inputs, right, the inputs that we use to make the decision, and then there's the output. And so we used example output to say, is there any sort of unintended bias coming out of the decision engine? And, And it was determined that there was not. So can you say who that third party was, and if not, why not? Charles River Associates. When you see what we've seen over the past week, starting with the Hanson stuff and, and then other people, Wozniak, for example, ha, you know, arguing similar experiences. In retrospect, do you think the report you guys got on the output was correct or do you think it, that report itself had some blind spots? Look, we feel confident with the output of the overall credit decision engine. We feel confident in the results of the third-party review that was done. I think we have a couple of situations here that have gotten a lot of attention, but they've raised important questions around, at the individual level, do people know what drives their credit decisions? Do they know what their credit history shows and how decisions get made? And I think that we've all learned this week that there's more financial education, financial awareness that we can all start the conversation about that because it is a very important conversation. You know, you said that you just applied and you looked at your credit score. I looked at my credit score on my commute in this morning, right? It's quite easy to do now, but it isn't something that we make a habit of. It's easy to get my credit score. So as I said, when I got it from you guys, I got my credit score. There was a number. It said it happened to come from TransUnion, but then it didn't tell me what you guys provided. It didn't tell me anything more, how that score was calculated. Should there be more transparency for me to learn how that number was arrived at? I think there should be. I think that there are sources of information about how that score is arrived at, and these scores are fairly standard in the industry, as I've mentioned. So we should all be aware, right? And the things that drive that score are your spending habits, how much debt you have, how you've managed that debt over time, you know, your payment history, and those are the things that go into it. And the score can move around, right? So it's not only just what is your score today, but how has it moved over time? And, you know, the score is just a three-digit number, right? Like, what does that score mean? Where are you in the range? What's a really good score? What's not such a good score? And I think there should be more awareness of this. It's a very individual matter. The things that come into your credit history are things that are linked to your specific experience. 
it's not necessarily about the household. Carrie, one of the interesting things, most interesting things to me about the statement you put out was that it came from Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs alone, not Goldman Sachs and Apple together, you know, co-signed at the bottom. Why? Apple still hasn't said anything about this yet. From Goldman Sachs' perspective, why are you guys having to handle this alone from a PR perspective? We have a very important relationship with Apple. We've partnered on the Apple card and it's, you know, we're very happy with the partnership, but we are the bank. We're responsible for the underwriting decision. We're responsible for the credit risk that we take, you know, in extending credit to customers in the United States. And so we have to be responsible for that. We're responsible for the safety and soundness of the bank. Carrie, final question for you. As I said earlier, the application process for this is very quick. It's very elegant. But given what we've seen, would you expect that in whatever it is, one month, three months, six months, that somebody applying for an Apple card at that point is going to be asked for some sort of additional information than they are today? I don't think so. But we We are very focused on the customer. The final component of the statement from earlier in the week was really around if individuals feel that the decision that was made doesn't reflect their situation, we want to hear from them. We want to hear from the customers, and we're very focused on them, and we're going to take each case one by one and evaluate it. Wouldn't it be easier for you to get that information up front, though, rather than have to go case by case? You could be talking about millions of people. I think what we found is that the response is these are isolated cases but they're still very important to us. And so we're going to take each one, one by one. Carrie Hallio of Goldman Sachs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My final two right after this. Earlier, we highlighted Silicon Valley Bank's experience with helping startups. But with Silicon Valley Bank, you're also getting a partner committed to supporting you as you strive to hit your next milestones. Perhaps that's why 50% of VC-backed tech and life science companies choose Silicon Valley Bank. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is increased regulatory chatter about consumer data and how big tech handles it. Specifically, does it represent an unfair form of competition? At issue is that current antitrust law was mostly written in the age of Standard Oil and big railroads. So it doesn't specifically address current data dynamics. Just last Friday, Justice Department Antitrust Chief Mackin Delrahim cited data as a competitive concern. And he's the guy who decides if mergers go through or not. And then the head of the the Electronic Privacy Information Center said he would push the FTC to incorporate data collection information into antitrust reviews. The bottom line here is that as we see more and more mergers, like last week's between Google and Fitbit, fears of data monopolies will only continue to grow. And finally, yesterday was the big launch of Disney's new streaming service, Disney Plus, and it went about as well as an Ewok basketball game. Last Thursday, Disney CEO Bob Iger had promised investors, quote, we're ready for scale. But then yesterday, the tech broke with Twitter full of frustrated users who either couldn't find Disney Plus in app stores, couldn't download it, or if they managed to do both of those things, couldn't make the thing work. Disney said this is because demand exceeded expectations, but it didn't explain what actually went wrong. For example, if it was a failure of the basic streaming technology infrastructure that Disney paid $3 billion to acquire in 2017, as opposed to building it itself, which is what some investors had wanted them to do. Chances are this first day glitch will soon be forgotten, so long as Disney gets the streams running on time. But if not, it could be the company's biggest bomb since Mars Needs Moms. Yeah, do you remember Mars Needs Moms? Of course you don't. It was terrible. And so far, so is Disney+. Plus. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Jesse Lee, have a great World Kindness Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.